This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What was it like to have Hunter S. Thompson as a father? Juan Thompson says it's the question he's most often asked. To his fans, Hunter Thompson was a groundbreaking writer, the pioneer of gonzo journalism. To his son, he was a remote figure, an addict with a mean streak. But the love between father and son was always there, even if it wasn't obvious. Juan Thompson has written a memoir about his father and their complicated relationship. It's called Stories I Tell Myself. Growing up with Hunter S. Thompson, Juan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. You were two years old when you moved to Woody Creek, just outside of Aspen, with your parents, Hunter and Sandy. What are some of your earliest memories? What I remember from that time was snow, lots of snow and it was very, very tall, you know. It was, I realized, well, that's because I was only like, you know, three feet tall. But this, these, you know, huge drifts and cows and uh, and just the the the, op- the open country. It was, uh, I was so great to grow up out there before Aspen was a uh, retreat, you know, for the rich. It was just, uh, it was, it was, it was the mountains. It was a country. You had moved from California, so snow is something of a novelty. I <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> At first, you lived in a rented farmhouse in Woody Creek. That was before your dad bought Owl Farm. So yes. Sort of famous ranch. Um, do you know if that original house, the farmhouse, is still there? It is. Okay. It is. One more stop, potentially, on a Hunter S. Thompson tour, I suppose. <clears throat> um, uh, potentially. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's uh, – uh, uh, but that was really – I mean, it was uh, – Owl Farm was where he lived for, you know, 34 years. That's – that was home. Yeah. You write, by the time my memories really kick in around six or seven, Hunter was a background presence, but not part of my daily life. He seemed to live roughly in parallel with my mother and me without being a part of the family. As a kid, how did you make sense of your father's distance? Well, the thing about this whole story is that, uh, you know, as a as a child, you know, four, five, six, seven, even probably up to around I was a teenager, all I knew was that I didn't have anything to compare it to. So, uh, it was just it was just how it was. Uh, that surprises me. In other words, you didn't look at other kids and think, God, their fathers seem more around. Um, no, and part of that was growing up in, you know, in Aspen at that time. Uh, Being isolated a, a bit. Well, and isolated and it was, it was, uh, uh, I mean, Aspen was a, a strange place. You had the, you had the, the old time conservative, you know, rancher and farmer uh, culture. And then you had these, these, these hippies who had come in from the coasts uh, and it was a, a real of clash of cultures and you had all these people who were determined not to have mainstream lives or raise their families in, in, in conventional ways. So there weren't many – I can't think of any of the families that I knew at the time where you know, someone worked a, a, a nine-to-five job. And so comparing to normal was a difficult thing to do at That's right. Aspen at that time. I, I gather that Hunter Thompson's sleeping pattern must have had something to do with these parallel – you know, ships passing in the night kind of lives because yes. my understanding is that he was often up all night and asleep most of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think he'd probably been on that schedule for a long time. Um, he would he would get up around four or five in the afternoon, uh, you know, have breakfast while I was having dinner 
and then, uh, you know, by, by the time I was going to bed, he was ready to, to, to go out and, you know, see his friends. It was, it was, you know, it was the middle of the day for him. And then he'd, uh, might go to bed around seven or eight in the morning. So it was almost a, you know, our schedules were almost completely flipped. Uh, and I, I think that's just how he was. Was he ever affectionate in passing? Not, not that I remember as a child, although when I was uh, writing the book, I found these pictures, you know, from when I was a baby. And, uh, and I was really surprised to see, you know, see him holding me. And I mean, he looked like a really, um, you know, adoring dad. Um, but by the time my memories kicked in, he wasn't, he wasn't like that. And I, I don't think it was because, uh, you know, he, he didn't love me. It, it just, one of the things that I realized about him is that he was, uh, I mean, he was born in the late thirties. You grew up in the, you know, fifties and he was a, just a different, he was a, you know, old school kind of guy. That idea that children are meant to be seen, not heard kind of thing. No, I think more that fathers are not a part of their children's day-to-day lives. That's, mm. the, you know, the, 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 the mother's job is to raise the children. The, father are, the, the fathers make the money and do their own thing. You are careful not to call this book a biography of your father. Um, this is, quote, a highly subjective and unreliable <laughs> memoir of how my father and I got to know each other over 41 years until his suicide in 2005. You'd have been too young to remember, but you write that your dad likely brought you at age one to a wild party in California at Ken Kesey's house, the writer and notorious drug user, and that members of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang were at this party. Your dad had written a book about them. Do you think you were ever actually endangered because of your father? Well, uh, uh, in retrospect, uh, uh, it was it was not a good idea to bring a infant to uh, you know a blowout party with Ken Kesey and the Hell's Angels, uh, especially given the you know the violence and the you know it was a gang rape that night. I mean, it was a, it, it was a bad idea. Uh, was I actually in danger? Probably not. Um, I was probably in you know some corner of a house somewhere. Um, but that's one of the interesting things about writing the book was looking back and saying, well, you know, um, uh, I would not, I would not make some of those same choices about what I would expose my son to, and yet, um, for some of those things, I I came out, I mean, uh, unharmed. Uh, You're a pretty normal guy. Yeah. I hope you take that well. well yeah, it's, thank it's, you. It's yeah, meant yeah. as a compliment. <laughs> but the, the notion that you're a functioning, contributing human being, you, you sometimes look at your background and, and, and are surprised by that? Yeah. Well, one of the, the, the strangest things to write about was uh, uh, the first time I took LSD uh, at 14 with, uh, with my, my mom and her boyfriend. And writing that, uh, at this age, looking back, it, that's a very strange thing. And that's something I would not do with my son. Um, but it was at the time in that culture in Aspen, that was not that was not strange. I mean, parents did drugs with their kids. That was not uncommon. And, you know, did it harm me? No. But would I advocate it? No. <laughs> do you do drugs today? No. No. 
Does that surprise you that you're not an addict? Your father clearly was. <laughs> uh, I am, uh, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's uh, just my nature or in, uh, you know, reaction to I'm not going to be like my dad, you know, in that way. Uh, I just feel very fortunate that I did not get that, get that, that habit or gene. When did you realize that your father, Hunter S. Thompson, had a highly visible professional life as a writer, that he was in effect a celebrity? Probably um, early teens. Uh, I think that was probably around the time of the first the first movie, uh, Where the Buffalo Roam with uh, Bill Murray. And I think that's when it really hit me that, wow, uh, you know, he's not just a uh, – a writer who is, you know, known locally. I mean, they're making a movie about him. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Juan Thompson, son of Hunter S. Thompson, the gonzo journalist. We're speaking about his memoir, Stories I Tell Myself, and we'll continue the discussion after a short break on Colorado Public Radio. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's rejoin my discussion with Juan Thompson. He's written a memoir about his father, Hunter S. Thompson, what it was like to grow up with the gonzo journalist outside of Aspen. Juan today lives in Denver. At around uh, age 10, your parents' marriage begins to fall apart. They fight, usually in the middle of the night. And for a young boy, you write that it's terrifying. And this leads you to despise your father. How, how, how come? It was – he was um, verbally, you know, abusive. I mean he was, uh, he was loud. He was uh, very insightful about uh, exactly what words to use to cause the most hurt. Going for the jugular. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it wasn't physical violence. It was uh, – uh, he really was trying to, you know, to win, to break, break my mom down and, and, he, and he did that. Uh, and watching him do that was just – it was so, so painful. Uh, and I just came to, to really despise him uh, for being so deliberately cruel. It strikes me as the flip side of his dexterity with language. That is what made him a brilliant writer, probably made him one of the worst opponents in a fight. Absolutely. Uh, his, uh, his ability as a writer and his, uh, uh, his perceptiveness about, uh, you know, people's character. Your father had a well-known love of guns. And in fact, guns had a lot to do with bringing you and him closer together in the end. Tell us how that was. Um. Sometime, I was probably around 16 or 17, I was going to, uh, once my parents got divorced, I had to make an effort to actually go spend time with them. So I'd uh, go out there, spend the weekend. And then at one point, uh, my dad said, uh, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's clean some guns here. Let me show you how to do this. And that evolved into a ritual, really, that lasted, uh, you know, from that time up until he died. Uh, and I don't know that he intended it this way, but it really became this this kind of bonding ritual where uh, whenever I came up, I, you know, cleaned the guns and it was um, – uh, it wasn't 
the cleaning of the guns that was so that was so critical. It was this. It was the bond that was implied as a result. Was it the first thing you had in common? You didn't have hours in common. <laughs> yes, uh, we didn't. Were have, a kid. We had very little in common. Yeah, uh, uh, I was am uh, a very different kind of person than my dad, and that was. I think that was that might have been one of the one of the starting places that, and uh, you know, uh, we'd sit down and you know watch an old Humphrey Bogart movie and, and clean some guns. And it, it sounds like you came to accept him for who he was. Yes, gradually. Gradually, Gradually. over the course of years. You write about the birth of your son, Will, and how that changed your life, but how it also changed your relationship with your father. And, you know, already in this discussion, you've made real clear distinctions between how you raised Will and how Hunter S. Thompson raised you one. Yes, yes. Uh, I was very clear that I wanted to do it very differently than than my dad had done and – I mean, I'm a very different person, so it wasn't like I was going to, you know, you know, get up at five in the afternoon and go to the bar at nine. But uh, I really wanted to be a part of my son's day-to-day life. Uh, that was really important to me, um, and uh, and just have more, you know, m- more rules and boundaries than I had. Um, and it was really, it, it was really great to see how Hunter reacted to Will when he was a baby. Uh, he would, when he first, you know, met him, he was probably, I don't know, six months old. And he, he put him on his lap and he held him and talked to him. And it was, I was so surprised to see, uh, to see how good he was with a baby. I mean, Hunter Thompson and a baby, you would think, you know, those are two things that do not go together. But he was, uh, he was gentle. He was, uh, he was, uh, attentive you know, now I certainly wouldn't have asked Hunter to babysit for the evening. You know, that would have pushed his patience. But, but it was really neat to see uh, how good he was with my son. And reminiscent of those photos that you said that you came across of you on his lap, Hunter mm-hmm. S. Thompson's lap, and your your own surprise at that. Your father killed himself in two thousand five. You, your wife, and your son were staying at Owl Farm when that happened. Why, why do you think your father wanted you to be there that weekend? Or, or was, maybe it wasn't quite so thought out. Well, uh, here I, I speculate. He didn't leave a suicide note. He didn't leave any explanation uh, for why he took his life and why he chose that time. So I've, I've sort of made it up. Uh, I think that he wanted me there. Uh, and uh, my wife and son because uh, he wanted to, you know, to leave uh, surrounded by by this love and acceptance. Uh, and I think he also wanted me to be there uh, to to deal with the situation, you know, to deal with his body and the sheriff and, and all of that I, uh, because he trusted me to uh, – you know, to do the right thing. So the reasons were both, I suppose, prosaic and profound at the same time. Yes, yes. And, you know, now I, I could be entirely wrong, um, but uh, that's, how I, that's how I choose to interpret it. And I think it's, I think it's more likely than not. 
Hunter S. Thompson, you write, uh, was in a state where his body was completely failing him at that time. And, and he was miserable. He did give you some things before he killed himself, didn't he? He did. Um, uh, the night before he killed himself, or the, you know, the morning, it was like four in the morning or something, uh, he said, uh, you know, hey, if there's anything, um, uh, you know, family things that, that, that you would like, um, uh, you know, why don't you take those? Uh, so uh, some, a little silver jewelry box from his, uh, from his mother, uh, some silver julep cups, which was a tradition in, in Kentucky. Where he had grown up. Yes. Yes. He grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. And, uh, and fortunately, uh, I, it did not even occur to me that there was, you know, uh, uh, that this might be uh, uh, significant that he was giving away asking me to take these things that were so important to him. I see. So you, because it sounds in retrospect like he had informed you he was going to commit suicide. That was not the the consciousness you had. No, thank God. Yeah. Mm. Earlier this year, I interviewed Anita Thompson, your Mm -hmm. father's widow, not your mother. Let's be clear. She still lives at Owl Farm, which she has left exactly as it was when your father lived there. And she wants to turn it into a museum. The reason I leave it this way is because it is history. When I've seen, I saw um, Ernest Hemingway's home, Edgar Allan Poe's home, these people are heroes of mine and hunters. It is such a privilege to see the home the way they left it. And I would love for uh, people who loved Hunter's work to have the same experience. And I can provide that. And it's, I feel so blessed to have that ability to provide it. Just briefly, how do you feel about opening up Owl Farm as something of a maybe private museum? I don't think, I don't think Hunter would have wanted that. Um, I've thought about that quite a bit over the last, you know, many years. And what I really come down to is that, uh, did Hunter want to be remembered as a great writer? Absolutely. Um, would he want people wandering around his, uh, his home? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, so the idea of having a museum of some kind, I think is a good one. Uh, but I really don't think that, uh, Hunter would have appreciated at all the idea of people being in his house. Do you go to Owl Farm still today? No, I, uh, not any longer, no. Is that a function of your relationship with Anita? Or? Uh, it's owned by a trust, and I've was uh, uh, been uh, prevented from visiting. Was that a function of your relationship with your father? Uh, with my father? No, no. Uh, I was going there for, for several years. Uh, all right. There's more there, but we're out of time. One, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Juan Thompson has written Stories I Tell Myself, Growing Up with Hunter S. Thompson. He lives in Denver. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. And we'll be right back with the Colorado folk band Elephant Revival. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It is still early in 2016, but Elephant Revival appears to be having a very good year. The Netherland folk band gets top billing at Red Rocks next month, and they have a new album, Petals. Hello, you move with me in a dance. Hello, you move me like the sea. Hello, you show me what our fears are made of. Who love me, love, love me just to be. This is the track Hello You Who, and it highlights some of the new instruments the band experimented with, like cello and 
kick and snare drums. I spoke with Elephant Revival singer Bonnie Payne, who also plays washboard and musical saw, and singer and guitarist Daniel Rodriguez. You two founded the band a decade ago. This is your first album with producer Sam Kassir, who's worked with popular acts like Josh Ritter and Lake Street Dive. Uh, You've been opening for Ritter on his tour. Do you feel that you have to change your sound to reach a wider audience at all? Or is this new sound simply musical exploration, your sort of curiosity as musicians? It's a pretty natural musical exploration. Um, with uh, We added a few different elements that also kind of led us in the direction that seems like we're going with the pedal steel and the cello and a little bit of um, more edgier percussion at times. Edgier percussion. What does edgier percussion sound like, Bonnie? Um, we've included a snare and a kick and some rusty chains on the album. and uh, Some rusty chains <laughs> as, as a musical instrument. Tell me about that. So uh, the producer, Sam Kassir, actually stopped off at a uh, garage sale and and bought a whole bunch of different chains. And uh, on a particular song called Pedals, the actual the title track, he mic'd up um, Charlie dropping the chains on the ground in a rhythmic pattern. So you get that. And this is your bandmate, uh, Charlie Rose. He actually um, was at the garage sale trying out different chains, and you know you can only imagine <laughs> for like almost an hour or something. He said <laughs> different size chains. Yeah. yeah, the ones that he got were you know these really gnarly big link chains that were you know really rusty. Those those ones sounded mm-hmm. the best. And he had some uh, some kind of smaller ones too, and the, the dropping and lifting of them made two different sounds. What did you think of this idea when he brought it to you? I think it was actually our idea to begin with. I don't remember his I, idea. Was. I, I liked it though. Because the, the song has a very, uh, Bonnie writes a lot of merry time-ish, you know, you have this imagery of you're on this big old ship crossing the ocean and, and there's a lot of adventure and mystery in it. And somehow those chains kind of created that image. And I think I heard of Tom Waits doing it once and I was like, oh, that would be so good. I'm really glad you brought up the word maritime because I got a very maritime feel from a number of the tracks on this album. I'm going to What are a bunch of landlubbers from, you know, Netherlands and lions doing writing about the ocean in the mountains? Dan grew up on the ocean, so there's that element. And then there's um, a story that I've been kind of writing or it's been writing itself with all these songs that are related to each other. And a lot of that has to do with the ocean. A lot of that takes place on the Irish Sea, particularly. This is like serial songwriting, Bonnie. Yeah. (laughs) And and, and it means that you have been writing songs that relate to each other from album to album. Mm -hmm. 
Do you feel like you miss the ocean? You know, I do, though we tour a lot. And so we do hit the California coast and the East Coast quite a bit and, you know, different countries and their coasts. God, the coast of Wales is really amazing. Did the tour bring you there? Our tour did bring us there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, absolutely true that place inspires you, but so do people. And I understand the band got together to brainstorm for this new album a little over a year ago. And this was after you all lost a good friend to breast cancer. Tell me about how that loss inspired a song that you wrote called Peace Tonight. The song um, is pretty much a direct inspiration of our friend, you know, Teresa, who we lost. Um, You know, I say lost, but she's definitely in the ethers there playing with the wind or something like that. But it's really the emotions and that she has sparked within me and, and just really the spirit of her personality is in that song. And she thanks the sky And she walks the earth And the tears that fall are beautiful And she's a friend of the band's in general. Was she ever a member of the band? She's a a dear friend and she actually uh, coached us, you know, on communication skills and, you know, because we're, you know, we're a band, we've been together for 10 years, it's like a big family and so that's how we approached her because that was her life skills and then through that, you know, we became really great friends. She was like the band psychologist, Bonnie. Yeah, I mean, psychologist is a strong word. She actually, she's worked with a few bands and um you know i think one of the art forms of being in a band that you don't hear about is communication with each other and um how to continue to develop that and not let it each other become a stagnant thing because we've been together we've been friends for over 10 years and traveling in small spaces so i think she really helped us grow and stretch in ways that people aren't always willing to accept help in you know we'll forever be grateful for her for that. And then she ended up just being a dear friend who would hop on the road with us. And it was very life-changing being with her and really recognizing how precious um, our time here is. All good lovers out there, peace tonight, peace tonight, to the broken hearted, to the burden to, to everyone, peace tonight. When a band learns to communicate or communicate better, what does that mean? Listening, I can think, is a huge part of it. <laughs> like using your communication to to make sure you're hearing each other correctly, which is good for the music, also. You know, because that's the first step in creating music together is listening as big as you can. You know, so you open up the potentials of what can weave itself in and out of there. So I think she helped us listen even more than communicate in a way. Which is funny because you think of musicians as already having a pretty darn good ear. There's always room for improvement. <laughs> you, can, you can listen to drums and, you know, understand that the bridge is coming, but you might not have too many life skills. <laughs> uh, from the ear to the voice a little bit, there are currently five members of Elephant Revival, and it gives your sound a real diversity. Uh, for instance... In the track we heard, Peace Tonight, it's really Dan's voice that's predominant. Uh, But in others, Bonnie, it's your voice that takes center stage. And in past recordings, I understand you've divided the vocal lifting among other bandmates as well. 
And it strikes me as so different from a band with one lead vocalist. You know, mm-hmm. Chris Martin is the sound of Coldplay or something like that. W- what do you like about that? And then are there any disadvantages maybe to even like the identity of Elephant Revival when you've got so many different voices? I like that we have a lot of different textures that we can utilize depending on what the song seems to call for. And that um, there's kind of some space for a song to find its place that way. So when you write a song, is it that you don't necessarily imagine who's singing it at that point? It depends on the song, and it depends on the writer. I mean, Dan and I write most of the songs, and they usually do start out alone and with the voices that end up singing them. So so there is that kind of thread. But um, there's other songs, like Raindrops is a song Dan and I wrote together that was just started with his guitar part playing over and over and me singing in the next room to his guitar part, not really thinking about who would end up singing that, but just thinking, oh, wow, this fits right into what he's playing in the next room. And I, I imagined that as being more of a duet, but it ended up being more of a song that I just sang. Raindrops on the rooftop, he said. Just stop and listen Constant as the earthquakes As the day breaks Stop and listen I think I was just coming up with a progression and finger-picking and uh, much to my delight, Bonnie was writing lyrics to it and it just sort of worked out and I, th- I th- it's worked out like that a few times. Um, <laughs> Well, there's this, like, non-verbal communication between you guys. <laughs> a lot of that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. But the writing is really democratic, right? It's not just the two of you or, or just you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we'll sit around during rehearsal or, or just writing, you know, as a group. And, and we'll um, start throwing songs at the wall and seeing what sticks, you know, no matter who wrote it. And everybody has a good sense of, you know, what would fit best with the band. And, you know, on this particular record, Dan Rose wrote uh, When I Fall. And it was pretty apparent that it was a strong song. And, you know, it was kind of unanimous that perhaps I would sing it. A light beyond the dark A love that is unbound Bonnie, there's a lot of your cello mm-hmm. on this album, and I understand this is the first time you incorporate your cello in an Elephant Revival album? Uh-huh. Tell me about that decision. That was... Exciting. And um, the producer chose, we gave him an array of songs, and some of the songs that he chose involved me playing the cello, which was fun to have an actual melodic instrument to convey the song on instead of a washboard or a drum to actually have something that you could emphasize the notes with. Because Um, washboard and drum, that's what you're accustomed to. Yeah, that and musical saw. Mm -hmm. So the cello is like a whole different voice to play with. And the first song on the album is called Hello You Who, and that's that and um, Further Shore are both part of that story that I was telling you about. You can kind of feel some similarities in them, I think. That but. serial story that you're telling. <laughs> what What is that story? 
Well, it's a long story, so I could tell you a tiny piece of it. Give me, yes, the Cliff Notes version. Um, so the first song on the album is um, When Two People Meet um, by the Sea. And I'll leave out some specific details there. But the um, they have a child, and that child's story is in the very first album that we recorded called Kurik, That Or the song is called Kurik, where the child gets uh, taken out to sea. And then there's a song in the middle of this new album uh, in Petals called Further Shore, and that's when the child grows up and tells of his adventures of what happened while he was out there. I've seen the furthest of the shore, I felt the deepest of the sea, carried away that fateful day, my mother calling after me. Heard my mother calling after me. It sounds like some of the songs on this album really have been percolating for a long time. Is that true? Like a decade in some cases. That is true. Yeah, yeah. some of them. And some of them were brand new, too. How do you make note of songs or ideas that come to you? I mean, is there just like a big file cabinet? Is there a file on your smartphone with all of these <laughs> ideas? Or do you just keep them in your noggins? For me, there's files everywhere. There's files on my iPhone. There's uh, many notebooks that I may forget where they are. I forget of of songs quite a bit and need to be rem- reminded of them. I save bits of his songs sometimes because I'm like, oh, you're going to forget that, and that is beautiful. Yeah, and sometimes Bonnie <laughs> will will borrow my phone if she doesn't have hers so that she can call her her voicemail and leave one of her songs that she's writing on my voicemail or her vo- voicemail. <laughs> I understand that one other ritual you have besides voicemails is you wear a special pair of gloves, Bonnie. <laughs> and I understand this is true when you are playing washboard, for instance. Yeah, only when I play washboard, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, yeah, that could be a callus-making instrument. Is that why? Um, I sew the finger picks on with dental floss so they don't fly off. Um, there's banjo picks on those gloves. And so that helps amplify um, the tapping on the washboard. Drifting round Cold river bound How did you come up with that clever glove concept? Um, well, my dad uh, had the idea to put the banjo picks on my fingers. Your dad? Um, mm-hmm. And then I played with just finger picks for a year or so. And then his mother passed away, and I, my grandmother, and I inherited a box of antique driving gloves. And my fingers were getting pretty torn up, and I was losing banjo picks. And so uh, we decided to try sewing the picks onto a pair of those gloves, which ended up working out. And then I, you know, I wear through them every nine months, and I had this supply of beautiful antique leather gloves that I knew what to do with all of a sudden. So. They're heirloom gloves. They mm-hmm, very pretty. Cool. The washboard <laughs> uh, are, are heirloom too. I, well, no, they're not heirloom, but you can only find the type that she likes at uh, antique stores. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting these by any means from instrument stores. They're no. true just antique washboards. Yeah, they're pretty specific. I quit telling which ones because they're harder and harder to find. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to give it away. Yeah. Did you guys imagine back in 06 that you'd still be playing together these many years later? Yeah, it was pretty clear for me. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't know, but I I knew that we would be friends for most likely life. But I didn't know that we'd still be traveling the country together. Bonnie, that's so optimistic. I just feel like I don't, I can't say what the next year of my life will be. Yeah. How, where did the certainty come from that in in a decade you'd still be together as Elephant Revival? Well, I can't say that I was a hundred percent certain. You never know with anybody, but I felt like with um with the music having the feeling of momentum that it had for me, like with with Dan's songs particularly, like I felt a place in them instantly and like with you know, each of the band members, if something was conflictual or something that we needed to grow through, there was just an overall willingness to grow. This notion of sticking together in cohesion, uh, this relates actually to the title of the band, Elephant Revival. Mm-hmm. Who wants to tell that story? Um, I Dan, po- pointed at Bonnie. Okay. You've been volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, Dango Rose, our bass player, was busking in front of the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And there were two elephants that had lived together for a long time who got separated. One was bought by the Salt Lake City Zoo, and they both passed away within a relatively close time of each other and some speculate that it was from heartbreak because they're tribal creatures they form really strong bonds when they live together and to be alone or you know separated and alone can be really hard on them so they both died separated from each other in in short order you know within a week or so of being separated yeah and we were all spread out all over the country at the time i was in oklahoma and dan was in connecticut and so dango saw that as kind of a sign to leave Chicago and sent us a message to come together as what felt like a tribe. You know, he was looking for his his tribe mates or whatever, and um, he sent me a text message that said, Elephant Revival Concept, question mark, and a list of, you know, the Stage Stop, Pearl Street Pub, like all these little venues in Colorado mostly and in Oklahoma where I was as a potential small tour. And I just sent, sure. And Elephant Revival was born. Dan, you all are making your headlining debut at Red Rocks. And I think it's interesting, Josh Ritter, who you open for usually, is now your opener at Red Rocks. Yeah. Because he's on your home turf, I guess. (laughs) It's that as well. Um, You know, we were getting acquainted with him on on tour and uh, acquainting us with his fans and his fans with us. So I think it was really... Uh, serendipitous that that happened um, and it's just a huge honor and oh man there's a lot of energy involved in this show you know you sound a little exhausted when you say that <laughs> oh do I I don't know or like daunted maybe daunted I, I you know I try not to think about it too much because I want it to, to surprise me you know and I want to be, yeah, I want to be surprised by it. <laughs> I think the most daunting thing, no, no, we won't get into that. <laughs> oh, no, we're getting into that now. <laughs> what is especially daunting? Um, the guest list. <laughs> like who to invite? It's um, hoping that we have the time that we want to. People who travel, you know, a lot of our family are traveling hundreds or a couple thousand miles to come see us. Uh, on a day that's probably the busiest day of our, one of the busiest days of our lives. And so that's the main thing for me is like how to 
create the time that you want to to make for these people who are only there during this short window that is packed full of, you know, we're going to, we have uh, rehearsals with the acrobats and. Um, That's right, because it's it's more than just a music show. There will be some uh, live dance performance, too. Mm-hmm. So we're getting prepared with that. But in this way, performing at Red Rocks is like preparing for a wedding. It's like being a, a bride or a groom on wedding day. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Okay. Yeah, it's exciting. I, we're, I'm very, very stoked about it. Uh, let's go out with one more song, On and On. And I noticed that about two minutes into this song, it morphs into this kind of chant Mm-hmm. On and on and on and on. And it changed from me from words to just pure sound. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Lyrically, you know, as the person who wrote it, um, I just couldn't be more happier with how it came out. And yeah, I think it's good uh, for chorus, you know, for people to get entranced. And uh, if it's a particular word or a particular sound, to just let that trance take over. And uh, I think that happens on this song for a little bit. Bonnie Dan, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. Daniel Rodriguez and Bonnie Payne of Elephant Revival. The Netherlands band's new album is called Petals. They play Red Rocks May 22nd. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. A Denver museum is closing, but not for good. The last day to visit the Kirkland Museum in Cap Hill is May 1st. Then they'll lock the doors and prepare to move to new digs in the Golden Triangle, where something of a museum district is forming. Ahead of the relocation, CPR's Nathan Heffel reached out to the director, Hugh Grant, and asked him to pick three pieces that embody the Kirkland. They're from three different art movements. So from the arts and crafts movement, we have two windows set in our entryway by Frank Lloyd Wright, the very famous American architect. And they're from the famous Darwin Martin House in Buffalo, New York. Uh, this is probably his greatest house, although falling water is more famous. It, they do have some color. They're not the very bright windows that you sometimes see by Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh-huh. Uh, these are very muted colors of uh, gold and greens and uh, ambers and, and a great deal of clear glass as well, which highlights the design of them. Why did you add these particular Frank Lloyd Wright pieces to your collection? What do they embody about the museum? They showed, uh, since we have uh, about 40 works by Frank Lloyd Wright on view, and then we have many more not on view, he did so many uh, d- disparate things. I mean, he designed houses, of mm-hmm. course, and, and buildings, uh, the uh, some great industrial building, buildings as well. But he designed to go in the buildings as well. He designed complete works of art uh, with furniture, with windows, glassware, tableware uh, for the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. I mean, many things. And so we uh, we thought it would be a wonderful thing, and there, you know, it makes a gorgeous entrance to our museum as well. Well, let's move on to the second piece. You've told me it's an exceptionally rare piece, and and one from Colorado. That's correct. Yes, it is. It's a lamp uh, which was made at the quite famous, really world famous uh, Van Briggle uh, Pottery Company, and it's located in was located in Colorado Springs. It was uh, founded about 1900 by artist Van Briggle and his wife Anne. Uh, She was a painter as well as designed uh, pottery. 
uh, artist very tragically died uh, of tuberculosis in 1904 at the age of 35. And so he had a very short career, uh, but uh, his wife took over mm-hmm. very ably and continued to design pottery. They continued to do pressings of his own designs as well, but she left in 1912. And for that reason, you want the most uh, important examples of Van Briggle are before 1913, and they're dated generally. For a novice who does not know much about the the Art Nouveau type of of works, talk about what that means and Ah, and what that is. You have uh, beautiful uh, curling, sweeping forms in Art Nouveau. Uh, Furniture will do that. The legs will turn and twist and they do kind of stylized uh, flowers as what you see in this Van Brickle vase are beautiful examples of flowers with their curving stems coming down on the vase itself. And then there's a a lampshade. Hugh, the third piece is quite different from the other two, but from a similar period. Uh, What can you tell us about the third piece? Right. We've done uh, Arts and Crafts, which is uh, starts uh, roughly in the 1860s and moves up to World War I. Uh, Art Nouveau is just after Arts and Crafts. But we're really going to move to Art Deco, which is 1920s and 30s, uh, began in France. Uh, but you get very geometric uh, things. And we have an example of one of the most important uh, Art Deco ceramics done in America. Uh, and it is a jazz bowl made as a punch bowl, and we all have an even more rare jazz plate. Uh, they were produced in 1931 by Victor Schreckengoss, a wonderful artist, and the jazz bowl is, it was made as a punch bowl. It was commissioned by Eleanor Roosevelt oh. in 1930 for a New Year's Eve punch bowl when uh, FDR, her husband, was still governor of New York. Uh, and, and there are only about 30 jazz bowls known and only about 10 jazz plates, but this is the only one in a public collection. Now, what do these pieces look like? The, the jazz bowl is quite considerable, almost 14-inch diameter. That's large. And 8 inches high, yeah. So get a lot of punch in that and have a lot of gas, <laughs> but I, presumably they did it's in the governor's mansion in New York. So it's carved on the outside with these marvelous um, images. The, uh, it has words uh, carved in it. It has jazz, dance, follies, uh, this was uh, depicting all the jazz rage in New York going on in the, in the 1920s and in the uh, great uh, days of the, of the flappers and, and things like that and the, and the jazz bands. You have images uh, on the side of cocktail glasses. You have gas lamps because electricity was still rather young in those days. Uh, New York skyscrapers because we're in New York and champagne bubbles and musical notes. I, you know, it's like – what else is there, right? They were quite whimsical in a sense. It, it was wonderfully whimsical. It's there. Uh, there's this uh, just in, incredible um, Egyptian blue. And, and not to downplay Kirkland, but we, we must talk about him. We must talk about his works because that is the namesake of this museum. Right. He um, was the founding director of the University of Denver in 1929 uh, and they're of the, the art school that's still uh, currently going. He brought Colorado a certain amount of recognition in uh, between 1997 to 2000. He was given 13 European uh, shows. Uh, Eleven were at the European museums uh, in ten countries. And so he has a certain uh, international regard as well. Uh, so he, he had a wide-ranging career. He began, as most artists do, uh, doing realism and uh-huh. then he does impressionism. Uh, but then he gets into abstraction and he does the – uh, he starts doing the paintings that you can see at uh, Betcher Concert Hall and at the L.A. Carkins Opera House. 
the very, very famous dot paintings. Those are probably the most famous thing he did, making dots with wooden dowels uh, on canvases that are laid flat on the table and manipulations of oil paint and water. And they're considered fictitious galaxies and fictitious nebulas. And so he invented his own cosmos. Hugh Grant directs Denver's Kirkland Museum, which is named for artist Vance Kirkland. The building that houses his studio will be moved on a truck to the new site. The old museum closes May 1st, with the new one opening not far away in fall of 2017. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.